we're in John 11, still looking at the raising of Lazarus. We started verse 17 last time. We won't review the whole thing, but one of the key things we want to look at is verse 25 as we review. When Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And Jesus, in the Gospel of John, has seven miracles that demonstrate who he is, that he's the Son of God. He also has these seven I am statements. And here we, in this passage, we see both. We see the I am statement that I am the resurrection and the life. And then the last of his miracles in the Gospel of John when he raises Lazarus from the dead. But Jesus is showing us by this miracle that he is the one who will restore life and continue it. So he will raise you from the dead and give you life. And he's the only one who can do such a thing. But more than that, he's not just one who gives resurrection and gives life, but he is the one who is himself resurrection and is life. So life and resurrection are in the power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, let's read our section for today, starting verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, that is Mary, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to him, Unbind him and let him go. Well, we see in this first part of the passage, the sympathetic Savior. The sympathetic Savior. Verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and spirit and was troubled. And in this passage that has death all around it at the beginning, we see for the first time some outward expressions of mourning. We have the weeping of Mary and the Jews with her. Verse 33, And this word could be translated wailing. It was a a loud uh, group of people. And sometimes in these days, people would hire professional mourners. You figure the more somebody was loved, the greater the grief when uh, when they're put into the ground. And so if you thought maybe you wouldn't have a lot of folks at your funeral or or your, your loved one's funeral, let's hire a few mourners so it will raise the volume so people will think that this person has been uh, very loved and is now missed. But they would, I don't know if they charged by the decibel back then, but the, the loudest, the, the best wailers would uh, maybe get a, a pretty penny. But this, 
But in this case, I think that this is genuine grief. Lazarus, I think, was, was dearly loved. This is the first of three times in this passage. In fact, when we show, when we see deep emotion from Jesus, it says here at the end of verse 33, when he, as he sees the weeping and the Jews weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. This word translated deeply moved was translated groaned in the King James Version. But there may be something more behind this idea of being deeply moved. Uh, D.A. Carson translates the phrase at the end, he was outraged in spirit and troubled. The Greek word that is translated was deeply moved here is used here in later verse 38 where it says Jesus again being deeply moved within. In other places, it usually refers to anger. So it's, we, you might think just reading it as it is, he was just overcome with emotion in this situation, but it, it may have this idea of anger. Some commentators think that anger is not really intended here, but it's just that Jesus, as the NASB says, was deeply moved in his spirit with all this emotion. But if Jesus is, in fact, outraged or angry, what is he angry at? Well, the text doesn't say. Sometimes Jesus is is angry at unbelief in other places, but in this case, it doesn't say why he may have been angry. Some commentators think his anger is due to the effects of sin and the misery it causes. So he sees death, and he sees all the weeping around it, and it it makes him angry. Others think that maybe he was angry at the unbelief that he may have seen in this group of mourners. Remember when Paul talks in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 about those who grieve as though they have no hope. And maybe that's what he sees here, but again, it doesn't say that. So it's hard to ascribe unbelief to this group unless we have an explicit mention of it. But this is what B.B. Warfield says about this passage and the emotion Jesus has being deeply moved. Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of inexpressible anger. The emotion which tore his breast and clamored for utterance was just rage. It is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death him who has the power of death and whom he had come into the world to destroy." Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but his soul is held by rage, and he advances to the tomb, in Calvin's words, as a champion who prepares for conflict. So whether Jesus is actually angry or whether he is just deeply moved by emotion, he's coming with great emotion to the tomb. And it says, verse 34, Jesus asks, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then verse 35, Jesus wept. And Jesus wept here is the shortest verse in our Bibles. And Spurgeon says, shortest of verses in words, but is there a longer one in sense? There is infinitely more in these two words than any sermonizer or student of the word will ever be able to bring out of them, even though he should apply the microscope of the most attentive consideration. It's amazing in one sense that the Son of God should ever weep, but in another sense it must be the case because The Son became a man, fully human, and weeping is part of our life, and so it must be part of His. And in this passage we saw last week, we see His full divinity on display as He claims to be the one who can give life, He can raise life, but now we see His full humanity. And the term here translated wept 
is not the loud wailing of the previous verse 33, but it simply shows Jesus as crying. And one translation says he burst into tears, but he's not uh, performing this sort of loud lament. Now, much to be said about this little verse, Jesus wept, but I'll say more later, a few things just for now. Number one, here Jesus sanctifies tears in the face of loss. Jesus sanctifies tears in the face of loss. And while it's certainly possible to be too prone to tears, and there is an unrighteous weeping, if Jesus can be deeply moved and troubled and weep, so can we, and without shame. Jesus wasn't ashamed to be seen weeping at the tomb of his friend. And even though Jesus knew what he was going to do, he was going to raise Lazarus, he was going to turn sorrow into joy, distress into wonder, and mourning into praise, first it was time to weep. He saw death and the effect it had on these dear people, and he couldn't help but weep with them. Weeping is a result of sin and its effects, but weeping in itself is not a sin. And so we can weep righteously at times when we are deeply moved. We see the sin around us. We see death. We see heartache and sorrow. We can weep and know that Jesus himself wept. Verse 36 says, so the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? The Jews think that Jesus is weeping for the same reason as the rest of them, because his dear friend had died. And maybe they thought that Jesus was as helpless as they were. Sometimes when we, we weep in the face of loss, it's part of it is a helplessness, isn't it? We, we wish we could change it. We could do anything to change the circumstances, but we can't. And so we weep because we feel helpless. And those in verse 37 say, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? That's a reference, of course, to John 9, when Jesus cured the man born blind. And they think that if Jesus had been there before Lazarus' death, he could have done something. But now it's too late. Jesus is now helpless to change the circumstances. He can't do anything to save Lazarus now. He's been in the tomb four days. He's decaying. There's nothing Jesus can do now, and so he must be weeping in part because his friend is dead and he can do nothing to fix it. Now you might ask yourself, the people in verse 37 who asked this question, are they criticizing Jesus as if to say, Jesus should have been here? Or are they just perplexed that Jesus didn't heal him while he had the chance? Whatever their attitude, whether critical or just curious, whatever their faith in Jesus, it doesn't extend to the point where they believe that he could raise someone from the dead, someone who had been dead for four days. Verse 38 continues, so Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, same idea as verse 33, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Again, Jesus shows this profound emotion as he comes to the tomb. And maybe it's righteous anger at the unbelief in verse 37 when they don't understand that Jesus can indeed raise Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus has been placed into a cave. This could be a natural cave or something carved out of the rock. And it has a stone lying against it, very heavy stone to keep out grave robbers and animals out and the stench of decay in. Well, in these verses, verse 33 to 38, we see Jesus 
as a sympathetic Savior, but now we see him as a powerful Savior. A powerful Savior. All of us have had situations where we feel overwhelmed with sorrow or suffering, but we can do nothing to change our circumstances. All we can do is pray and endure. Or maybe you've talked to someone who's been crushed by a horrible situation, and it feels frustrating to be able to only, only able to say, I'm sorry, I'll pray for you, but you can't really do anything. We're sympathetic sometimes, but we can't fix the problem. But Jesus was never in that situation. Whenever there's a situation that needed to be addressed, Jesus had the power to do it. As the Son of God, as the resurrection and the life, even death, the most lasting physical consequence of sin, and as Paul calls it, the last enemy, even death cannot stand against him. Now, if this story were about us at the tomb of Lazarus, if we were one of these mourners here in verse 33, the story would end here. We would be praying at the tomb and weeping, and that would be it. We would say goodbye to Lazarus, and we'd walk away. But with the Son of God, with the resurrection and the life standing there, the best is yet to come. Out of tears comes joy. We see now God's glory. We see Jesus' glory is going to shine forth in a way never seen in the history of the world. Jesus has said in verse 4, The sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And he's going to do that just now. John eleven thirty nine. Jesus said, Remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. But Jesus has a simple command at first. He says, Remove the stone. You might ask yourself, why did Jesus have them remove the stone? He could have done it himself, couldn't he? He could have just levitated it somewhere, just moved it out of the way. But J.C. Ryle says this, that Jesus had them do what they could do, and Jesus would do what only he could do. Another interesting part here is it says that Martha is the sister of the deceased, speaking to him again. Now we know that she is Lazarus' sister, why does it mention it here again? And we can only speculate, but it may be to show why Martha would be so reluctant to have the stone removed. If your brother were in that tomb and he'd been dead four days, you know it was going to stink. You don't want to be reminded of your brother's death and actually smell his decaying corpse. She doesn't want to smell the stench of her dead brother. Maybe that's why he mentions again that she's his sister. Jews did not embalm like the Egyptians did. They would wrap the body with spices, but after four days, the rotting body would have become too much to to bear. And so Martha here only sees that aspect of things. She doesn't understand what Jesus intends to do. Maybe she thinks that Jesus just wants to see Lazarus one last time and saying, Jesus, probably not a good idea to go in and visit Lazarus right now. Just let him lie. But Jesus has a response to her. Verse 40, he says, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And we here have a mild rebuke from Jesus for her small faith. We're not sure what, exactly when he said this. He said, Did I not say to you? Maybe he said it at some point in the past, but didn't record it here. Or maybe uh, this is a summary of what he has said earlier about being the resurrection and the life. But in any case, Martha is like us, isn't she? She has faith that's limited by what seems possible, which isn't really much faith at all, is it? 
We only see faith in what is possible, but we forget that God is the God of the impossible. That God will do things to demonstrate his glory, but without faith, we don't have eyes to see it. Some commentators make an interesting observation. If I start saying this, you fill in the blank. Seeing is believing. Right. But in this case, what does Jesus say? If you believe, you will... Right. So we say seeing is believing. Jesus says believing is seeing. Or better yet, believing leads to seeing. If you believe, then you will see. Many people saw Jesus teach. They saw him do miracles, but not all of them saw the glory of God in it. In fact, some of those who saw Jesus' miracles said he did them by the power of Satan. So they saw Satan's glory in Jesus' miracles. They didn't have the eyes to see that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. And that by understanding Jesus' word and works and person, that they were actually seeing God glorifying himself. I was reminded of this idea of believing is seeing. Recently, how many of you have seen those pictures from that Webb telescope? Amazing, isn't it? You see, the idea is you hold up a, a grain of sand at arm's length, and you see that picture with all those galaxies in it, each of which could have trillions of stars. And then you multiply that of of the entire universe. How many trillions and trillions of galaxies and stars are there in this universe? And so many people were saying, this is amazing. They're ooing and eyeing. Aren't these scientists wonderful? This is a great piece of technology. Good job, everyone. And so few gave God the glory. I saw lots of articles about this. And not that I expect much from the media to say, isn't God good? But this, this whole telescope program shouts the glory of God, doesn't it? In a way that the scientists only get a bare glimpse of, and we get less than that. God glorifies himself in creation. And when you read the creation of the stars in Genesis, it says, when you created the sun and the moon, it also says the stars also, like it's, like it's nothing. But we know the universe is so vast and filled with so many stars, so much matter, so much energy, that we can't even get our minds around it Even all these years later, the scientists can only speculate as to how many worlds are out there. And yet, who gets the glory? NASA. Deserve glory. But God should get the greatest glory. We as believers, though, must believe that God will show his glory, but we don't passively just wait for it to happen. We look for his glory. Psalm 19.1, you know this, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of their hands. We see the heavens, and we see it telling the glory of God, but so many see the heavens, and they, they see the glory of nothing. Whatever big bang happened, whatever accidentally took place, is what gets the glory. But we, as Christians, must be those who glorify God because of his great works. But there are times when we may not see God's glory. And so in those cases, we must be like Moses. What did he pray in Exodus? I pray, show me your glory. He wanted to see a visible manifestation of God's glory. And maybe we don't expect to see God's glory in a Shekinah and a pillar of cloud and fire on this earth. But we can certainly pray that We would understand God's glory and see how you're going to glorify yourself in this difficult situation. Father, I'm really struggling, or I see things in the world that are so discouraging, so depressing. 
Lord, show me your glory in all these things. May I see it. And if we believe, we will see God's glory. Verse 41, it says, They removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. So before Jesus performs the miracle, he finds it fitting to pray to the Father. Now he says here, I thank you that you have heard me. That is, the idea is that he has already spoken to the Father and the Father has already heard him. Maybe he has already prayed to the Father about raising Lazarus and now he's thanking the Father for answering that prayer or just about to be answering that prayer. We see Jesus often giving thanks. Before he fed the 5,000, he gave thanks to the Father and he then he distributed the meal. And Jesus here, as he prays, he doesn't say every head bowed, every, every eye closed, but instead he raises his eyes to the heavens. That's how they would often pray back then. Raise his eyes and speaks to the Father. And Jesus could have spoken in his heart to the Father. He could have prayed. I'm sure he always was praying, communing with the Father in a quiet way if he wasn't publicly praying to the Father. But he said it out loud so all there could witness it. They can see his deep connection to the Father. We have this cause and effect. Jesus is as close to the Father. He has this intimate connection with the Father. And his will is one with the Father's will. And when the, the Father wills to perform this miracle through his Son, it will happen. And so Jesus wants to make sure that everyone here understands that it's the Father and the Son who are doing this work together. And this work happens as a result of the Father hearing the Son. This sounds like Elijah in First Kings. Remember when he is about to uh, call down God's power on, the, on Mount Carmel with, with the, the altar there, and he's confronting the prophets of Baal. And Elijah prays this, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. So Elijah wanted the people to see that the Lord, Yahweh, was God. They had strayed from the path in worshiping Baal also, but they would be turned back to God at least for a time. And Jesus here also has a purpose for his miracle. To strengthen the faith of his people, it says here, because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. He wants to strengthen the faith of his people and bring about faith in others. Remember back in verse, um, or let's look at verse 45. It says, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. In verse 48, these are the, the leaders of the Jews, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. They, they knew what was happening. Chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. The chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews who were, go- were going away and were believing in Jesus. So we have many who believe in Jesus as a result of what Jesus will do here. But he also says, um, verse 15 of John 11, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So he was trying to strengthen the faith also of the disciples. So those who had not yet believed in Christ had came to faith as a result of this miracle. Those who knew Christ also had their faith strengthened as Jesus healed Lazarus, as he raised him from the dead. 
so that they may believe that you sent me. Now, at least 40 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus mentions that the Father has sent him, and he often links that sending with belief or with faith. John 5, 4, just a few examples. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, so there's faith and sending of the Messiah, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. John 5, 38. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. John six twenty nine. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he, the Father, has sent. And then one last example, John 12, verses 44 to 45. Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. And so we want to understand that Jesus was sent from the Father, and those who believe in Christ believe that the Father sent him. In fact, his miracles show the Father sent him. They prove the Father sent him. John 5.36, Jesus said, The works which I do, the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, testify about me that the Father has sent me. So now Jesus has prayed. In verse 43, When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. And I think Jesus here cries with a loud voice so all who are there can hear him. They can see the cause and effect. They see Jesus praying to the Father. They see Jesus calling out to Lazarus. So they know that this miracle, all that's happening here, is because of Jesus' close connection with the Father and his power over death. So there's no question that this was an accident. Jesus happened to be right place, right time. No, Lazarus came forth and only came forth when Jesus himself called him forth. And what an amazing miracle this is. There's nothing like it in recorded history. Other raising miracles from Jesus, or even by some other prophets, were shortly after death and involved bringing the soul back into the body and healing whatever was the organic cause of death. But in this case, since the body had begun to decompose, Jesus, by his mighty power, had to reverse the destruction of the cells and restore Lazarus to full health. I don't know how this works. One of my sons could do this because he's a pre-med guy, but he knows what happens to cells after they die. You can't just put a soul in a body like that and have it be animated. You have to regenerate those cells and make them work again, more than these people back then could understand. He wasn't like some undead, rotting zombie, but he was a strong, healthy man. In fact, he was better than before. Whatever he made him sick, he was now well. Whatever rot there was, whatever cell decomposition there was, was miraculously restored in a moment. But while Lazarus wasn't a zombie, he did look something like a mummy. Actually, not that tightly wrapped. He wouldn't look like the mummies you might have seen in a movie, or or an Egyptian mummy. Bodies uh, for the Jews here, would be placed in a long sheet, and there would be bindings around that. So imagine a sheet wrapped around him, sort of over the top of him, and then they would wrap him tightly like this. And so he wouldn't have been able to walk well in all those wrappings, but he could maybe hop or skip or shuffle along. And it might have been funny, 
in other circumstances to see him trying to move his grave clothes. You imagine the stones rolled away and here comes Lazarus sort of shuffling out in his grave clothes. You might be tempted to laugh if you weren't so amazed. And Lazarus here is alive and he's trying to walk and Jesus gives one final command. He says, unbind him and let him go. Again, these people did the work that they could. Jesus did the work that he only could. And there, strangely, I think, the story stops. And it would be interesting to hear from Lazarus what he experienced after death. Lazarus, what did you see for those four days? <clears throat> Doesn't say. In fact, <clears throat> as I mentioned before, Lazarus never speaks in the Gospel of John, and he's never seen elsewhere in the Bible. So Lazarus never says one word in all of Scripture. A very prominent person, but maybe only in a passive sense, as he's raised from the dead. You might also want to learn what happened with Mary and Martha. If this was a movie, you would have the the embrace and the swelling music and all that kind of thing, and everybody crying and cheering and all that. But we get none of that here. John just stops, verse 44. But we have enough. We could speculate, but we have enough to see what Jesus has done. The point is not even the reconciliation between Lazarus and Mary and Martha. The, what's the point of the passage? glory of God, the power of Christ. And we've seen that already. As soon as Lazarus comes forth, as far as John's concerned, that part of the story is done. <clears throat> but there's one more thing we can say about the raising of Lazarus. As great as this miracle was, Lazarus would die again. We could maybe say this resurrection was really a resuscitation. He was raised to life, but only to die again. This isn't the true resurrection of our immortal bodies, that Jesus experienced, and that we will experience in the last day, never to die again. So this is only a temporary reprieve from death for Lazarus. But it was enough to show Christ's power and to show God's glory. Well, let's end with a few applications, observations. This is such a beautiful passage. It shows the heart of our Lord. It demonstrates his humanness, as I I said before. If Jesus were not moved by the weeping of his beloved friends and the others in this village, he would not be a loving Savior, would he? Jesus was not some emotionless God wearing a man's skin. He was fully human, except for sin, and he felt all the righteous emotions as we do. He might, what we might call the highest highs, the lowest lows. Jesus experienced all the emotions we do, even in, maybe better, you could say, because he had no sin to taint them. And one thing, as I as I meditate on this passage, it's so beautiful about Jesus' righteous emotion. Jesus could have avoided this grief. He could have avoided John 11.35, couldn't he? All he had to do was heal Lazarus. He was willing to undergo that pain, that grief, that weeping, because he saw the glory of God in it. Jesus could have sidestepped all the grief that Mary and Martha and these people felt, but he had a higher purpose in this grief, in this death, was to glorify God. Just as he came to this earth, he didn't come just to glorify himself. He didn't come to be a king, to reign over all the earth, which would have been his right to reign over the earth with a rod of iron and never experience any grief, any pain, anybody who tried to Come against him, he could have slain with the, the with a sword. 
But he came to die. He came to suffer. And he could have sidestepped all of that. But the path to greater glory, the path to redeeming a people for himself, the path through obedience to his father was a path that led him through suffering and death, his own suffering and his own death. And Jesus didn't avoid grief in order to uh, have his own way. He went through grief to accomplish his father's will. So that shows Jesus' love for us. He's willing to himself suffer and grieve and weep for the sake of God's glory and for our own good. And so as we think about death, we think about suffering, even resurrection, we ask ourselves, why does a good, loving God allow suffering and death? And that's one of the most profound questions we can ask. One of the first things that uh, cynics or people who, who are uh, critical of of Christ, of, of the Bible, will say, how can a good God allow this? And there's many answers, different answers. Most of them wrong, but and we won't go through that, through that right now. But this question goes back at least to Job and before. Why does a good God allow suffering and death? And without getting into a long discussion about it, this passage gives us a couple of answers. First of all, God is glorified. And second, his people are ultimately blessed through suffering and death. But part of the answer is also that God doesn't stand aloof from suffering. He enters into it in the person of his son, the son who himself suffered. The son suffered hostility, abuse, scorn, rejection from his family and nation, the grief over the death of a loved one here in John 11, betrayal, beatings, and a painful death on the cross. And beyond this, Jesus suffered the wrath of God, so that is one thing his people will never suffer. But Jesus suffered many of the same ways we do, but he suffered in one way that we never will. He suffered on the cross, the wrath of God, so that we will not ever have to do that. We can be reminded of Isaiah 53. We could read this whole passage. Let me just pull out a couple of verses here. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render him as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. And through the suffering of the Savior, he redeems the people for himself and triumphs finally over suffering by defeating sin and Satan. So when you are thinking about how a good God can allow this suffering, remember that Jesus himself became a man so that he could suffer with us. So God doesn't just stand back watching. He himself enters into creation and suffers with his people to redeem them.
And Jesus Christ did this all for the love of his Father and his people, and in fact, the joy set before him. Recall Hebrews 12.2. For the joy set before him, that is Christ, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the one who was God of very God himself suffered and died for us. One question we can ask ourselves is how we react to suffering. How do we react to suffering? Do we ground our faith in Christ and who he is? When you face sorrow, grief, suffering, even death, hold on to this promise. John 11, we just read it a few minutes ago. Verse 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. The Christians have hope in grief and suffering. We look ahead to the resurrection. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. And we might think our lives could be a long time to consider night, but we could think of this as metaphorically referring to our death. Weeping may last for the night, for the time of our our sojourn on this earth, weeping may be there with us constantly, but a shout of joy will come in the morning. First Thessalonians chapter 4 speaks of our hope that's grounded in the resurrection of Christ. First Thessalonians 4.13 We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that is, the Christians who had died already, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up and together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And how does he end this? Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Just as the resurrection of Lazarus showed the power of Christ over death, the resurrection of Christ himself showed the ultimate triumph of Christ over death by raising us all someday to live forever with him. And we don't have time to go through this, but 1 Corinthians 15 has much to say about our hope in the resurrection of Christ and how we can trust that he will accomplish all that he intends to concerning us and that death will not be victorious over us. In fact, we have the promise from Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So if you are struggling, if you are even weeping, if you are despairing and grieving right now, if you are suffering, seek to know Christ better. Seek to know him in his person, in his power, and his promises. And hold on to those things. Comfort yourself with the word of Christ. We can trust him. There's no situation in life that he cannot use for his glory. 
If he can raise Lazarus, he can fix whatever it is that you are struggling with right now. Now, it may mean waiting and sorrow and grief as Mary and Martha waited for several days for Jesus to come. Maybe many years. May mean suffering, death, but he's in control and he has the power to overcome and he will do all things for his glory and our good. Another couple of final thoughts. Let me remind you that there is such a thing as righteous grief. If you're grieving over a loss in your life, you can weep, knowing that Jesus himself wept too. And take comfort that he knows what sorrow is and is a sympathetic Savior. You may find yourself in seasons of life where you live in the Psalms of Lament. And you say, cry to the Lord, How long, O Lord? But we know that Jesus can say with the psalmist, I know how you feel. Perhaps the saddest psalm is Psalm 22. It starts out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we may feel that at times. But what were Jesus' words on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt the feelings of the psalmist in Psalm 22 to a degree far more than we ever could. So Jesus laments on the cross, but he laments for the joy. He sees the joy ahead of him. So when we lament, we can also see the joy because we know that Christ has triumphed over death. And when we lament, Jesus can say to us in the deepest way, I know how you are feeling. And one final call to those of you who don't know Christ, make sure that you know Christ so that you will have eternal life. Jesus says, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Every man, woman, boy, girl, who has ever lived will all be resurrected. But Jesus says in John 5, there's a time when those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And so I ask as Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe that there is a time to come when you will be judged for your life? Have you believed in Christ or not? Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. So you must get right with God. You must believe in the Savior, Jesus Christ. Trust in his death for you, his resurrection for you, and believe that he is the only one who can save you. We are all sinners. We all are dead in sin, even as Lazarus was dead. We are dead spiritually, separated from God, and only Christ can raise us. Lazarus did nothing. Lazarus couldn't ask to be raised. He was already dead. But Jesus, by his power, raised Lazarus from the dead. You can't save yourself. You can't raise yourself to eternal life, but Christ can do that. He does that as we believe in him, trust in him, and ask him to save us from our sins. Let's close in prayer. Father, what great power we see in this passage. What great sympathy we see from the Savior. We are amazed at the power of Christ, and we are amazed at the sympathy of Christ as well. We see his grief. We see his strong emotions. We even see righteous anger. And yet we know that he was without sin. He was fully man. He has experienced all the righteous emotions that any man can But he did that for our sake and for your glory. If there are those who are struggling here today, 
with grief, with sorrow. May they turn to you and know that comfort that comes by your spirit and by your word. If there are those who don't know Christ, may he raise them from spiritual death, even as he raised Lazarus from his physical death. May he say, come forth to those hearts. May they be raised to newness of life. We thank you for your love for us, for your love through your son and for what he has taught us today. May we live in light of that and though we might grieve for a moment, may we look forward to the joy, the shout of joy that will come in the morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.